Welcome to Warning Signs. This is week 10 of a fall sermon series that I uh, began to preach and didn't realize that was going to take us all the way through the life of David. If you're new here, uh, we have been doing this. This is our 10th uh, installment of this sermon series. And just as a, a preemptive strike to your ego before we get started, this week and next week especially, is going to live up to the, to the title of warning signs. One of the things that I installed in that promo was the only signs that will hurt you are the ones you refuse to read and follow. This week and next week, we're going to be dealing with salvation and deliverance. And we're going to be talking about the life of David in a way that we have not yet explored. Now, if you were here last Sunday morning and Sunday night, we talked specifically about the warning signs of the age. Now, now we talked a lot about the things that are being promoted by the king. We had two kings and two kingdoms. Some of y'all were here. You did your work. And one of the things and a lot of the themes that are being promoted by the king of this age and we, we directly hit some of those things head on. And, and I told you that David's life changed after Ziklag. When, when he came back and found the entire town burned to the ground and his family had been taken captive and his own men turned on him, David's life up until that point had been uh, one joy after another. It had, been, it had been things like being anointed and being prophesied over and he was winning victories and God's hand was on him. And all of a sudden, when he gets to Ziklag, we find him depressed. We find him defeated. Now, eventually he wins the battle. But when we look at the timeline of David's life, David's life is never the same after Ziklag. And we're going to be discussing this for the next couple of weeks. And this morning, we're going to look at three events in David's life. We're going to go all the way back to when he defeated Goliath. We're going to be going and looking at the temple at Nob in a little bit. And then this morning, we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. And, and, and as we go through these three events, there's a reason I want to tie these three events together. So we're going to go all the way back to 1 Samuel 17, which is the story of David and Goliath. We're going to read some scriptures there. And then we're going to fast forward back to where we belong here in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, but, but first we're going to begin in 1 Samuel 17, and again, I want to emphasize to you that warning signs is going to take on a new meeting this morning and next week, because David's life is one that speaks to watch out. Know that you are not exempt from falling, and this morning's message is titled, Danger, unsafe roof. Uh, unsafe roofs. Now, the reason that I bring this title to you this morning is because that's where we're going to find David, most of this story. But before we get to the rooftop, let's go back to 1 Samuel 17, verse 32. David comes to talk to King Saul there's a giant named Goliath. He's challenging the people of Israel for 40 days and 40 nights. He shouts his challenges, and nobody will fight this Goliath. 
And David comes in verse 32 and says, Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Saul says, Don't be ridiculous. There is no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You are only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Stop right there. Let me pause right there. Did you hear what this boy just said? I've got people sitting in this congregation that goes hunting and you're hunting Bambi with a, with a bow and arrow and a gun. He just said he fights a bear and a lion and beats it to death with his bare hands and a club. Rips its jaws open. Look at your neighbor and say he was born for this. Uh-huh. See, see, before I move on, I, I want to I emphasize something. There are things that you were just born to do. There, there are things that you can't really explain why you're so good at it. Because other people struggle to do it. But it just comes natural to you because you were born to do it. They need to read books and manuals and they got to watch 17 YouTube videos to do it. But you just look at it and say, well, that thing fits on that thing. And if you spin it like this, bam, it works. And it doesn't work that way for everybody, but it works for you because you were born to do it. Look at your neighbor and say, purpose. That's going to be a very important word. A very important word as we look at David. Verse 36. I have done this both to lions and bears. And I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The God who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented and said, all right, go ahead. <laughs> and may the Lord be with you. In other words, I ain't going with you. <laughs> I hope God goes with you because I'm going to say right here. Now we're going to move fast forward in David's life. And I'm going to cover some of the gaps here in a moment. But let's first read the scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Pay attention to the time here. In the spring of the year when kings, what is David by this point? Say a king. When kings normally go out to war. In other words, he's not supposed to be here. He is a king. Kings are supposed to be at war. He's not supposed to be where he's at. David sent Joab. He sent Joab and the Israelite armies to fight the Amorites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, it's good to be the king. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he saw a snack. Well, the Bible says he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath, but the young people would say he saw a snack. He sent someone to find out who she was. In other words, he tried to hit her up on Instagram, Snapchat. And he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of your... She's another man's wife, a man named Uriah the Hittite. 
Jump down to verse 14 in the same chapter. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. That doesn't seem too unusual until you read the contents of the letter. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Who is that woman over there taking a bath on her roof? That's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. By the, he don't even get to the next chapter before he is sending Uriah with a letter that contains his own death sentence because he wanted another man's wife and he had that man killed. One thing I love and respect about the Bible is how real it is. It walks us through all the stuff. And I mean it doesn't pull any punches. It's got the good. It's got the bad. It's got the U-G-L-Y. You ain't got no alibi. You ugly, ugly in it. I mean it does not pull punches. People are phony, but Scripture is real. And it doesn't even leave out the parts about people that doubted God, like prophets. It doesn't leave out people that got depressed and the ones who failed. It doesn't leave out the ones who sinned against God. It tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And this week, this week, David's life is going to expose to us the U-G-L-Y of his story. Because we've seen him praising God. We've seen him victorious in battles. We've seen him depressed and discouraged. And we have seen David so anointed that he could chase devils away just by playing a harp. And now we're going to see him not only as an adulterer, but with blood on his hands. And this time it's not Goliath's blood. It's not the blood of the Philistine soldiers that he is fighting. This is the innocent blood of a friend. I just got goosebumps. And it said, if you read that last scripture with me, not only was Uriah the Hittite killed, But there were other Israelite soldiers killed as well. Please, please, for all that is decent and holy, stop saying what I hear people say all the time. Well, my sins only hurt myself. Please do not believe the lie that your sins only affect you. Because the Bible just said his friend was killed and there were other innocent soldiers because it was a terrible battle plan. It was an awful way for them to attack. It was not going to be that way, but because David wanted to cover up a sin with a death, other people were sacrificed. Please stop saying that you aren't hurting anybody else because you are. I told you it's going to get thick in here this morning. My amen committee will resign before the end of this message. David is a man of destiny. Say yes. He's a man of passion. Say yes. Uh, He's a man of purpose. However, he's also a man of flawed character. He's called. Yes. 
He's anointed, yes, but he's also tainted. This is why I love the Bible. Because it doesn't just elevate people and let them stay on a high, holy perch. It shows that you can be anointed, be used by God, and still be dealing with some stuff that ain't so holy. Uh huh. David made a name for himself in 1 Samuel 17. When he defeated the Goliath, his name spread all around the kingdom. Immediately, when I mention the word David, immediately you always think of Goliath, yes? Somewhere around the age of 16 when he fought Goliath. And he stood up against a grown man, that a giant, that other grown men didn't want to deal with. And in 1 Samuel 17, here's what we see. We see David running to a battle nobody else wanted to fight. And just a few years later, just a few years later, because he had become so famous, he, all the girls were making TikToks of the new viral song. David is sl- uh, Saul has slung his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And David would look around at all the TikToks and say, that's me. And, and here's the problem. Here, here's the issue. We've seen Saul get jealous of David and lose the kingdom. And David comes behind him running into the wilderness to, 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 to make sure he's hidden from Saul's attacks. And he is the victim, and Saul is the bad guy. How quickly, how quickly your story can change from you being the victim to you becoming the victimizer. How quickly he had run from Saul. He had hidden from Saul. He was trying to make sure that Saul did not kill him. And now, all these years later, when he has taken Saul's place, he uses that same power that he was escaping from Saul to kill Uriah the Hittite. You have to be real careful. I don't want to get into this because in a few weeks I'm going to be preaching on bitterness. But you have to be real, real careful that you don't become the thing you hate. you got to be real. you got to guard your heart above all things because out of it springs your life. All things in your life comes springing out of your heart. You have to be real, real careful that the thing you're running from, the thing you despise, the thing you reject, the thing that you hate doesn't become your character. Because David ran from Saul when he was king trying to put him to death. And now Saul or David has used that same power. And years have passed since he killed Goliath. Uh-huh. Being a champion's not new to David anymore. Can I preach for a minute? When David first got invited to the palace by King Saul, he was in awe because he was used to being a sheep herder. He was the least of his father's sons, staying out in the backside of his father's sheep field. And when Saul invited him into the palace, can you imagine how overwhelmed David must have been? The shiny gold on the walls, the bare skin rugs. He might have said, I probably killed one of them. But now instead of being a guest in the palace, while he still smells like his daddy's sheep, he lives in the palace. He is the commander of the army. And for years, God has given David victory after victory after victory. He has servants. 
He has power. He has wealth. He has chariots. He has horses. And now his normal life is the life of a king. Have you ever caught yourself taken for granted things that you used to beg God for? Don't check out on me yet because this is important. I'm not just up here talking. I'm telling a story. Have you ever found yourself showing up late for a job that five years ago you was fasting and praying that God would give you? You ever found yourself driving a car that when you drove it off the lot, you cried and said, ain't God good? And now that same car's got 17 McDonald's bags over in the floorboard and you ain't washed it since your six-year-old was born? Ain't it amazing how yesterday's miracle can become today's entitlement? David found himself in a place where he didn't give any, any purpose or any value to fighting anymore. David is in a place where he doesn't even have to fight anymore. He has soldiers to fight for him. Did you hear that when I read that? He sent Joab. He sent the army. But he stayed in Jerusalem. And the Bible says it was the time when kings were supposed to go to war that instead of going to war, David went to the roof. In one season, David is running to a battle against Goliath that nobody else wants to fight. And in this season, David is avoiding a battle that everybody was required to attend. Uh, what happened? What happened? We've been following David's story since we first met him and his daddy. What happened? I'm glad you asked because the same thing happened to David that happened to me and has happened to you. One thing about rooftops is you don't just wander onto a rooftop. you got to climb. It takes effort. It takes deliberate action. And it takes, it takes time. See, I'm going to talk to you today about finding the wrong stuff on the rooftop, and some of you are going to be like, well, I couldn't avoid it. Oh, no, you don't get on the rooftop by accident. You wasn't dropped out of no helicopter. To get to the roof, you climbed up there. And if you ever put on any kind of shingles, I've done a lot of shingle roof in my life, if you've ever hung Christmas lights on the roof, you probably took a lot of precautions to make sure your full self didn't fall Come on now. When you get up on the roof, most of you, uh, don't, it, now some of you like to live dangerous. Look at that Kristen that likes to climb 15-foot ladders with slides on. And OSHA's not approving of it. But some of you take a, a great precaution to make sure you don't fall off the roof. But I want to let you know this morning that when it comes to your spiritual roofs, you don't have to worry about falling off of it because you fall on your way up. <sighs> So why, let's, let's first examine, why was David on that roof? Why was David, when he was required to be in war, instead was on a roof? Here's what we know. He was not on that roof to catch a glimpse of Bathsheba because the Bible says he was surprised to see a beautiful woman doing what she was doing. So let me see my timeline again if, if I can. I, I, I want to show you that David, it, do you see here where it says the temple at Nob? He runs from the temple at Nob to the cave of Adullam. And we, we, we preached that message where David was hiding in the cave of Adullam. Now, now there was another cave in that same 
uh, in that same time frame that was in a place called Engedi. And while he was hiding in that cave, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that Saul was with his army hunting for David, trying to kill David. And he was right outside the cave. And David and all of his men was hiding inside the cave. And Saul needed to use the little boy's room. So he came into the very cave where David was hiding. And he came alone because he's a man. Had it been King Sarah, there would have been 15 of them that came. But because it's King Saul, he came alone. While he was in there, David's men said, God has delivered Saul. Pay pay attention, I, I promise I'm going somewhere. God has delivered Saul. You should kill him. I mean, after all, the reason he's here is because he's hunting you down. He's trying to kill you. And David, David said, who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? God cannot bring him here for me to kill because that would be going against God's own word. And David refused to compromise. Uh, the, The timeline, please, again. I'm sorry. Here, he refused to compromise. Here, he willingly did it. What happened? What happened between these two locations? What changed? Why was David on that roof? We know he wasn't up there to see Bathsheba. We also know that David was not hiding from war. I mean, come on, let's be honest. He's not scared to fight. He picked the fight with a giant. And when you read the Bible, up to this point, there's not even any indication that David's ever even been wounded in battle. So he wasn't up there to see Bathsheba. And he wasn't up there because he was hiding from war. So I'm going to give you the reasons I believe that David and me and you end up on a roof. Are you ready? Get your pen ready. David didn't go to the roof to sin. Sin happened because David wasn't working, walking in his purpose. So David didn't preemptively decide to sin. Sin was made available to him because his purpose was to be in battle. And he was in the wrong place. The rooftop is where you go when you've surrendered your purpose for your pleasure. I just did a whole lot of preaching right there. The rooftop is where you go when you have surrendered your purpose for your pleasure. Whenever you avoid the battle, you are headed the wrong direction. And you need to know the warning signs of how you end up on unsafe rooftops. I've got two warning signs. Are you ready? We're going to go through these together. There are two warning signs that will lead you to unsafe rooftops. Are you ready? I got one person that said yes. The first one is exhaustion. There is a tire that a nap will take care of. But there is a level of tire that sleep won't fix. This is the kind of tire that's not a physical tire. It's when you have neglected your purpose and the roof starts calling your name. Oh, help me, Jesus. Help me preach this Holy Ghost. I don't want you to raise your hand, but 
I got a feeling in a crowd this big, I've got some people that knows what it's like to hear yourself say things like, I'm just tired. I'm tired of arguing. I'm tired of crying. I'm tired of being the only one in this relationship trying. I'm tired of trying to solve all these problems on my own. I'm tired of trying to make a dollar stretch at the end of every month. I'm tired of being the one that everybody comes to to fix their problems, but nobody's there for me. I'm tired. And the warning sign of exhaustion is when you no longer have any fight left in you. There, I've had people come in my office and they sit in front of me, and I know, I know it's some of you. I'm not pointing you out. Just hear me. I've had couples come and sit in my office in front of me, and they talk about how much they fight. And of course it's not healthy to fight all the time. Of course we try to work through that. But can I tell you that there's something worse than fighting? It's called apathy. Because at least if you're fighting, you care enough to fight. But there comes a place called apathy where you no longer even care enough to stand up anymore. You no longer care enough to fight. And there is a level of exhaustion that will knock the fight right out of you. And when you get tired of trying to figure out things like, who can I trust? Who is with me? Who's lying to me all the time? Who's the backstabber? When you get tired of that, you just shut down. You just quit trying to help anybody else. You stop trying to fix relationships and you just get exhaustion. And we see with David, the danger of exhaustion is it will take you to places like the rooftop. And when you get on the rooftop and you are tired, you don't think straight. Because you think stuff like, I'm tired of this relationship. Do you know what you find on a rooftop? Bathsheba. I'm not getting no help, but I'm going to keep preaching. Do you realize that when you are, you say things like, I'm tired of the way she treats me. I'm tired of her never wanting to uh, kiss me. I'm tired of him not taking care of things around here. And you end up tired on a rooftop. Expect the enemy to put in front of you exactly what you are tired of not getting at home. You get tired and you'll start saying things like, I deserve better than this. I'm sick of being treated this way. I'm sick of spending every Friday night alone. I'm, I'm tired of being the only one that doesn't have a date. I'm tired. I'm tired. And you end up on a rooftop. Now, the other potential reason that I came up with that David ended up on the roof instead of on the battlefield is because his palace had become too comfortable. So we've got exhaustion and we have complacency. Are you with me? Life has a way of humbling you, friend. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Do you remember when you moved out of your parents' house? Do you remember? You was like 19, 20, 21, 42. It's different in 2023. I don't know. Like, <laughs> things ain't like they were when I was young. Do you remember when you moved out of your parents' house and you looked back at your parents and you said, I ain't going to live like that? I, I mean, I'm glad that worked for mom and daddy, but my marriage ain't going to look like that. When I have kids, I'm not going to... Does anybody remember saying those things? And we talk a big game, don't we? 
I mean, even today, childless people will look around and say, yeah, that was my youngin'. People that ain't never had no ministry will look at the pastor and say, if that was my ministry, if I ran that church, people that ain't never been the boss will look at the boss at work and say, I'll tell you, if I was in there, uh huh, I wouldn't put up with that. Let me give you a, just a free scripture. This is just free this morning. 1 Kings 20 and 11 says this. The king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. In other words, don't tell me how tough you are if you ain't done nothing yet. Don't you tell me how to handle a situation that you ain't never been through. Every guy's going to be a great husband on the day of the wedding. Every woman that gets pregnant and she's young and it's her first one, she's got the whole thing figured out. She's watched all the YouTube videos, read all the books. She's walking around condemning other women that's got uh, toddlers saying, you shouldn't let them do that. Dr. So-and-so says to never let them get away with that. She's got all these big ideas like, I'm never going to let that baby sleep in my bed. And then she's like, I'm never going to use nothing but cloth diapers because it's best for the environment. I'm never giving that child soda or sugar until they get their driver's license. And three months into this baby-having project, you will let that youngin fall asleep on you wrapped in a trash bag for a diaper, sucking on a bottle of chocolate milk if it means you can get eight minutes of uninterrupted sleep. It's amazing how optimistic we are when we are young and haven't done anything. Somebody say amen. How fearless we are when we ain't fought nothing. We haven't been through too many battles when we're young, and so we, we think this is how I fight my battles. And when I'm young, giants don't scare me. So I run into battle. Did you notice that when David showed up, he was the only kid? All the men were afraid. David, as a young teenager, ran into the battle because when I'm young, I'm dumb. I don't know what I don't know. And I'm not, I don't even know enough to be afraid of a giant. Giants don't scare me. Getting married don't scare me, but add 15 years to that marriage. Starting a new job is a blessing. Add 22 years to that same job. And you go through some battles. One day you'll find yourself running up onto the roof because you have run from your fight. So he's exhausted. Possibly he's complacent. Think about it like this. When David was running toward Goliath, what did he have to go back to? A sheep field. When he was fighting Saul, hiding in caves, what did he have to go back to? I'll fight you too if it means I get to quit sleeping in that nasty, stinky cave. I'll fight a Goliath too because the only thing I've got to go back to is a stinking field of sheep. But David has become complacent because he used to sleep in the sheep field with sheep. He used to sleep in caves. And when you're sleeping in sheep fields and caves, you're willing to fight to get out of that situation. But it's been a long time since David was in that sheep field. 
David ain't sleeping in a cave anymore. He's sleeping on 1,500 count Egyptian cotton sheets. David's gotten soft. David has gotten complacent. His palace has been on MTV Cribs. He's living large. And now he has a life of comfort so he doesn't see the need to fight. Now I'm about to get real personal, okay? And I'm going to preach to myself for a minute because I often find myself, like I imagine some of you, looking up at God and saying, God, can I just have three days with no drama? Hello? Like, like God, I have had different seasons can I get one without so many problems? Can, 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 can I have a season where I don't have no people problems? Nobody's quitting the church. I ain't got no kid problems. I, I, because sometimes it feels like my problems has got problems. And, and sometimes I pray, hear me, sometimes instead of praying for God to strengthen me through my problems, I'm praying that God will get rid of my problems. And I believe if we're honest this morning, a lot of us spend a whole lot of energy and prayer time trying to reach a certain level of comfort. But when I read this story about David, I am beginning to realize in my own life, comfortable seasons, hear me, have never really been a blessing to me. Now, you ain't going to like me saying that because you're supposed to have 12 steps to my breakthrough and five ways to get your miracle. But I'm going to tell you something. In my walk with God, the greatest prayers I prayed were never prayed in a season of comfort. As a matter of fact, my desire to get closer to God has never come in a season where everything was going great. Here's what I have found. It was the pain that drove me into fighting my giants. The problem caused me to pray. The enemy that was chasing me made me chase after Jesus because I knew if he didn't help me, I was going to... So, so we can get so comfortable that we lose our fight. We can get too complacent. Because as long as Saul is chucking spears at me, as long as I'm living in caves trying to hide from people trying to murder me, as long as the battle is brought to me, I stay sharp. I stay prayed up. I stay in shape. But what was in the place of comfort made David vulnerable to the temptation. It's when I think that I don't have anything to worry about that I have everything to worry about. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Can I tell you that none of David's soldiers ever revolted against David and tried to kill him? But two of his own sons, we'll find out in the next few weeks, two of his own sons that were raised in the palace tried to steal the kingdom and kill David. Two of his sons who never had to worry about a thing because they were born into luxury, born into the palace. They have never struggled, and instead of struggling, 
they decide to take. But none of the soldiers that was actually out fighting for David ever tried to take David's kingdom because they knew what it's like to have to fight. Psalm 104 and verse, or 144 and verse 1 says this, Praise the Lord who is my rock. He trains my hands for war and gives my fingers skill for battle. Can I tell you this morning you were made to fight? And I know we talk about breakthroughs and we take, talk about being more than an overcomer and all of that is true, but you were trained and made to fight. Why? Because you were made to take territory. You were made to storm the gates of hell that will not prevail against you. You were, you were made to destroy yokes of bondage and not just your bondage, but the bondage that was passed down through the generations that you say, I will not let what my daddy gave to me be passed down to my children. I will when others run away, I was made to fight. It got to me, it will not pass to my children. You take a stand and fight. So I want to ask you a question before I move on. What are you fighting right now? Because some of you have prayed your way into a season of complacency and I don't want to see you end up on a roof. Because all of us, all of God's children needs a battle. Because if you don't have a battle, you'll end up on a roof. And make no mistake about it, you do not go to a roof to go up there and chill. With David, there was a UFO waiting on him. An undressed female object. And when you end up on a roof, the devil knows what your Bathsheba is too. Hello now. Every believer needs a battle. I bet I'm the only preacher in America preaching that message this morning. Because everybody else is talking about how to overcome your battle. I'm telling you, you need a battle. And it may not be against the, the enemy of your, uh, of your soul, but sometimes the battle is with your own self. Sometimes it's just you saying, I need more faith. I need, I need to study my word more. I, I, I need to believe more. I, I, I need to get my attitude under control. I need to temper my temper down just a little bit. And, 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 and sometimes, sometimes it's you fighting to reach forward because the Bible says forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward toward the mark of the prize, which is in Christ Jesus. Some of you need a battle not because you need to fight something else. You need to fight within yourself to say, God didn't bring me this far to lead me this far. He wants me to have more than this. I need to fight to get ahead. I need to fight to break through. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 11 verse 12. He says, and then from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. He's not talking about sinners, he's talking about God's people. Taking it by force. So let me ask you this. What is your violence directed toward this morning? Because if it's not directed toward your purpose, if it's not directed against your enemy, it's going to come against something else. And some of you haven't directed your violence in the right direction, so you're directing it against your parents, against your spouse, against your kids, against your coworkers. Because this is what I call the trap of emotions. When you feel something so strongly 
that it provokes you to do something. And that's what happens on the rooftop. And the reason it happens is because you stop fighting on the ground and you end up going to the roof. Some of you are avoiding battles that God has called you to fight because you're hanging out with other folks that quit their fight. And the folks you're running with ain't going nowhere. And you can't help me get nowhere if you ain't going nowhere. Somebody ought to say amen right there. So the proper way to apply this text is to make up your mind that the enemy no longer has permission to occupy territory in your life. You have determined to cry out to heaven until you see a change happen. I'm talking about fighting until you see a change happen. That you're going to apply the wisdom of the word to every area of your life until you see the change that you want to see. I'm talking about people that say, until I see God's vision that he put into me come to pass, I will not stop fighting. Until I see my prodigal son or daughter come back home, I will not stop fighting. Until I see the business built that God told me to put, until I see the ministry go, until he told me to burn until I see it happen I'm not going to quit fighting I've got something to fight for does anybody in here got something that you are willing that you know is worth fighting for and what makes the roof so dangerous is how far down you can fall The history of Israel in the Old Testament is an account of people who never quite knew who they were. They loved backsliding in the Old Testament and crying out to God and God would rescue them and he would, they'd serve Him for a while and He would bless them and He'd give them victories over their enemies and then they would run right back to the world. Them hard-headed, stiff-necked believers. And it seems like they were always more comfortable in the world than they were in the presence of God. Here's what happens when they get into the world. They pick up the world's habits. They pick up the world's worship. And they pick up the hunger for the things of the world. Israel's biggest problem was they didn't want to stand out. They didn't want to be a freak. They didn't want to be weird. They wanted to blend in. They wanted everybody to like them. They wanted to be accepted in every circle. They wanted to fit in with everybody else. You know what I call that? Wanting acceptance from your enemies more than you want acceptance from your Lord. Because make no mistake about it, the world is only a friend of yours until they get from you what they want from you. 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel comes to Samuel when Samuel was still alive. By this point in David's life, Samuel was long dead. But Samuel was still alive and the people of Israel came to him and said, We want a king. All our friends got a king. We want to be like everybody else. All these other kingdoms have kings and we want to be like them. And Samuel said, If you have a king, by the way, you already got one. And he wants to be your king. And they say, yeah, but we can't see that king. We want to see a king we can talk to and bring our problems in front of. And Samuel said, okay, but if I give you a king, here's what he's going to do. He's going to tax you until you're broke. He's going to take your sons, put them in his army, and send them off to fight his battles. And he's going to take all the prettiest daughters you got and make them his wives. They said, yeah, that's what we want. 
What is wrong with these people? Well, it's easy to pass judgment on them, but we do the exact same. Because here, we seem to forget what happened to Israel every time they tried to fit in. They would sink down to the standards of the world because they had made friends with the world. Why do you think the New Testament tells us that if you're a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God? Because here's what happens when you become a friend of the world. The world is only your friend until it uses you up and gets from you what it wants you to uh, give them. The world would begin to make demands on Israel. Take from them and ultimately make them their slave. What does the world, two kings? And what does the kingdom of this world want to do? Make you a slave. The king of that kingdom wants to make you a servant. And the difference between being a slave and a servant is your choice. Yeah. So Israel would cry out because the world that they befriended took their house, their peace, their provision, their children, and their freedom. Because the enemy is strategic. Your enemy is better at fighting you than you are at fighting him. That's why you need Jesus to fight your battles. Your enemy is strategic. He had one purpose for Israel. Are you ready for this? I know I preached a long time. I'm going to, I'm going to land in just a moment. He had one purpose for Israel. He's trying to dislocate them from their purpose. Trying to keep them from becoming what God designed them to be, which was his people. And the same attack that he used against Israel in the Old Testament is the same attack aimed at you. He wants to dislodge you from your purpose. Being a servant of the Most High God. What's that, John? My enemy is a... We learned last week my enemy is a liar. But Jesus tells us in John 10.10 that he's also... A thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So he's a thief. He's a thief. Say it out loud. He's a thief. So expect a thief to steal. But pay attention because the order is important. You've never thought of this. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. They're not the same thing. And the order is important. Because if he steals the joy of your salvation, you will start looking for satisfaction in other places, like rooftops. If you no longer appreciate, I'm tying this whole thing together. If you no longer appreciate what Jesus did for you on the cross, if that no longer feels like enough to satisfy the inner longings of the hungers of your flesh, you will go to rooftop. Try because you he stole the satisfaction of your salvation. So you'll start doing things against God inviting sin into your life which opens the door for the enemy to come in and kill. So, 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 so he stole the joy of your salvation. You went on the rooftop and opened the door to sin. Now the enemy comes in and kills your testimony. 
kills your effectiveness to minister. He, and the reason he does it is to destroy your walk with God. How many ministers have you saw through the years? Had great ministries, had television ministries, had popular ministries. And they opened a door on a roof. Y'all not going to help me. They opened the door on a roof and their ministry was never the same again. Because the enemy comes to steal and then kill and then destroy. He doesn't jump to the destruction. He's too wise for that. He's strategic. He's got a strategy aimed right at you. He wants you to invite him in. Because it's only through the invitation of an open door that he can get in and do his destructive manner. You, child of God, who are covered by the blood of Jesus. He can't destroy you. He can't destroy you. You've got to open a door and let him in. That's why you need to fight. You need to struggle. You need to stay on guard. Be not ignorant of the enemy's devices. Now imagine what happens when he steals your joy of coming to church. You no longer have the joy or the passion to come to church, you're going to replace that with something on the roof. And once you've opened the door on the roof and let something in, his ultimate goal is to destroy. How many people have you saw be involved in church? Coming to the altar, praying, and now... Where'd they go? Where are they? They're out in the world because what they had got destroyed. If he, if he steals your appreciation for your marriage, you will go on a rooftop and see another man's Bathsheba and say, I deserve to be happy. And you will open a door where he will come in and steal not only your marriage, but somebody... Somebody, he'll steal a daddy from a baby. He'll steal a mama from her own children. Satisfying the lust of the flesh because we invited him in and he stole and now he's killing and ultimately he's destroyed. Can I be real with y'all for a minute? I know I preach a long time, but can I be real? The thief stole 10 years of my relationship with my son. My only son. I got two daughters. I have no brothers. I've got no other Mitchums coming through this line. This line. He is it. The Mitchum name lives and dies with Jared Mitchum. Our name, our purpose, our legacy, our heritage are hidden. In Jared. And the thief stole an entire decade of me and him having real conversations. Because for 10 years, every conversation we had was shrouded in lies. He wouldn't be honest with me. I couldn't be honest with him. All of the things that God has spoken into a father to pour into his son got stolen for 10 years. I was not able to pour my purpose into him for 10 years because he was always afraid to reveal too much to me 
Because he knew what he was doing and he was always too angry to receive anything to me. So we did not connect for at least 10 years. Why? Because the enemy's goal is to kill the seed that is inside of him. Kill his voice, kill his anointing. Why? So he could ultimately not just destroy Jared, but destroy me, destroy her, and destroy the Mitchum name from the earth. Destroy any chance that the effectiveness of everything God has built through us would be placed into him. But that devil is a lie, and he has no power except that which we allow him to have. And I'm going to fight and fight and fight until I see victory. I refuse I refuse to get complacent until my children are serving God I've got something to fight for Anybody got anything worth fighting for? And I'm going to end it real soon, but I need to get this one more point into you. You need to realize that your trip to the roof don't happen in one. You ain't Superman. It ain't a leap and a bound. It's small compromises and short steps. Uh, let me show you what I mean. It's a gradual thing. One step at a time until you find yourself on a rooftop exhausted and complacent. It doesn't hit you all at once. It, do, it doesn't hit you like a roundhouse hook. The devil's strategic. When you start seeking the approval of men and no longer care about the approval of God, when you stop Seeking, you start sinking. When you stop seeking, you begin the process of sinking. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is appearing to the disciples. They have been in a hurricane and the boat was about to sink and they thought for sure they were going to die on the Sea of Galilee. And one of them looked out and said, Jesus! Is that you? Hey, I think that's Jesus. Peter said, that ain't Jesus. Watch this. Jesus! If that's you, bid that I might walk to where you are. I told you that wasn't. What'd he say? Jesus said, come on. Peter, listen, I know he was talking to Peter, but that command could have been for everybody. There's 12 people in that boat. Only, I know we pick on Peter, loud mouth Peter, open mouth, insert foot Peter. I know we pick on him, but Peter's the only one who jumped out the boat. Any of them could have grabbed that word. Any of them could have snatched hold of that promise and walked on the water, but only Peter. Jumped out and starts walking toward Jesus. Can you imagine the feeling? 
25 seconds ago, you thought you was about to drown and die. Now you've seen Jesus. You've got a word from Jesus. And now you're walking on the water to be saved. And verse 30 says, But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me! Notice what it says. Leave that up there if you will. Notice what it, he didn't just go down. What's it say? It wasn't immediate. It says he began to sink. That means with every step, the more fear replaced faith. The more his concern with what was going on around him replaced the concern to get to Jesus. With every step, he was ankle deep. The next step, he's knee deep. The next step, he's waist deep. He feels himself getting wetter and wetter. He feels the danger, but he don't know how to get out of it. He can't save himself because he feels like he's beginning to sink. But thank God that he did not go all the way down. He had enough sense to cry out, Jesus, save me! And there's all kinds of things you can sink into. You can sink into compromise. You can sink into unconcern about your salvation. You can sink into complacency. You can sink into unfaithfulness. You can sink into a lack of desire to be with God. You can sink into outright sin. And some of you, could you play something for me real, real softly? Some of you know you should be living right. But you are having too much fun. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be weird. You don't want to take a stand. You're not all the way under yet. But you still give in to peer pressure. You still come to church on Sunday, but you still got a taste for the things of the world. You know people are praying for you, and you know Jesus is pulling for you. But you're not ready to let go of the world just yet. And then some of you, I just feel in my spirit, some of you are on the verge of sinking. Some of you don't realize how close you are to never coming back to a place like this. Some of you already feel yourself sinking. You're on your way down and you're not drowned yet. But today is the day that you have to decide who you're going to serve. We learned last week there are two kings and two kingdoms and your loyalty will be tested. It's being tested not just in this generation but in this room today. Pastor, how do I know if I'm sinking? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you don't have joy and desire and discipline in your relationship with God anymore, you're sinking. When you can come to church or stay home, it don't make any difference to you, you're sinking. 
when you can be exposed to the filth of this world and feel no conviction you're sinking when you can tell a lie when you can steal from somebody when you can make crude critical comments about people you can chase after the lust of the flesh and you feel no remorse you're sinking when you can break God's heart and not feel remorse you're sinking and every step you take toward the roof feels like you're going up but I promise you you're going down and your enemy of your soul hates you and he will not allow you to get back up until you have the gumption to cry out Jesus save me and here's what amazes me about God he loves you I don't understand it because some of us don't even like you but he loves you God has done nothing but good to us and we have done nothing but misuse him and he loves us still and no matter how far you have sunk no matter what you did to get yourself in this miserable condition he loves you enough that he brought you here he got you under this anointing he let me preach this word so that you won't sink too deep and drown in an ocean of your own desires and he's given you the opportunity to cry out Jesus save me so I want everybody in this room that has that sinking feeling to hear me very clearly you're not alone you're not the only one but would you like to stop it right now you have that sinking feeling would you like to put an end to that you've been sinking and you can't you can't seem to get your bearings in life anymore you've been sinking and you can't get your mind clear You've been sinking and your heart's torn all to pieces. You've been sinking and your emotions are shot. You've been sinking and sinking and sinking. I want you to know that Jesus is here. He loves you. And He will hear you and stop your sinking. But you've got to get off of that roof. You've got to put behind you the things that got you there. The desires, the lusts, the passion the misguided ideas and you've got to say I'm coming down listen as you come to this altar you're not coming to an altar you're coming down off the roof every person in this room I'm tired of this sinking feeling save me Jesus get up to this altar but you're not coming to an altar you're coming down off the roof picture that in your mind I'm getting down off this roof everything that put me on this roof I'm going to take care of it in this altar today I'm going to kill some stuff I'm going to, ex I'm going to expel some stuff I'm going to evict some stuff I'm going to get some stuff straight in my life I have been messed up long enough I have been on this roof long enough and today is the day of my salvation Jesus said Help me, Jesus. I know we got several members of this prayer team, but they're overwhelmed. We got more people up here than we got prayer warriors. 
So if you're, uh, if you're in here and you can come and help some of these people pray, come and, come and ask them what you can help them pray for. We got people, we got young ladies here. And... We got more prayer seekers than we got prayer partners. Just a word. My God, my God, my God, my God, my God.